fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Here we are, F-Triple-G-B-T. This is the show where we take your favorite science and technology and make it a reality. We do that. We are the brain trust. We are the ones who do that for you. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me is physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Awesome to be here. Very excited about all the new shows I've gotten to watch. I know. We really got you hooked on some good stuff. And yep. the, the uh, television dealer for this particular episode, this series of episodes, is our enigmatic engineer broadcasting from a currently disclosed location, but normally undisclosed. Ben Seepser, thanks for being on the show. Where are you broadcasting from today? Greetings from New Terra, Dan and Denon. You know, it's, it's great here. Lots of lithium. Gotta love that lithium. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rolling that lithium dough. Rolling into lithium. That's a season four episode joke, uh, Denon. You know, I got it. I got it. Ben and I had caught up. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, so this is going to be a great episode, but it's going to be a little tricky, I think, because what we really need to do, guys, at the end of this episode, we need to come up with a unified theory of protomolecule because we're going to talk about all the many forms of the protomolecule, but at least from my very rudimentary understanding, it does a lot of stuff and we can talk about them individually, but as far as as a group, as a thing, I get a little confused. So that's going to be our goal today. Do you guys think we can do that? I, I think so. I'm feeling good about this, Dan. Okay. Confidence level's high. Ben, what about you? You think we're good at it? I think the precursors knew all, and it's a perfect thing that can has a perfect solution. Awesome. We're going to get to it today. So let's talk, what is the protomolecule? It, it seems to have, at least in the first couple seasons of The Expanse, the protomolecule seems to have a very symbiotic relationship. It's an X, so it's the first... The first exosolar, basically extraterrestrial, alien, life form, chemical, whatever it actually is, it's the first thing that the that the people in the expanse, which are obviously based after humans in the 250 years in the future, it's the first thing that they encounter. But at first, it really acts like a symbiotic thing. We're able to combine it with uh, humans and organic material. It also combines with other chemicals, non-inorganic things it's it, it, it's attracted to an energy source so w what do you think from a physics standpoint then and, and I, i'm going to get into the biology later on but from a physics standpoint what do you think's going on in the basically the first phase of the protomolecule well I, what i like about it and this is tough i i i really felt like it was a decent stab at what nanotechnology might actually be Love it. Like, okay. like most nanotechnology that makes it into science fiction, there's no real attempt to give it any accurate physics, right? We just throw, we like to throw around the buzzwords of nanomachines, nanotechnology, and so on. And, and I felt without going into too much detail, because we don't know what it really is, right? That's the mystery of it. But you had the basic, I think, in my mind, I'm going to combine kind of the basic core elements of a virus with the basic core elements of photosynthesis. Because photosynthesis is a chemical machine that turns light into energy. And, and a virus is a chemical machine that uses other things to replicate itself. And, and I think if you take those two basic physics slash biology building blocks, you, you, can, you can then think about how you might 
program, uh, and we talk about it as the proto-molecule. I, I do wonder if it's it's a collection of molecules, perhaps, or, or you know, a little more complex than, than we imply that it is, if it was to really work. But, but I do think it's those two basic building blocks. Hmm. Okay. I've got a different take on it, but I want to hear what Ben says first. Yeah. It, it's a lot of things, obviously, right? It, it, it can combine with people, but it also seems to build stuff. So I think, I think of it more as its own kind of like living nanotechnology, bacteria colony, slime molds kind of situation that is somehow compatible with our biology enough that it can also take us over. <laughs> um, but I, I see it as kind of a colony of living organisms that can do stuff and also then infect us as, as necessary. I, I kind of like, uh, that's where I was going with it being more than a molecule, right? Like it's really the collectiveness that seems to have to matter, right? Right. Whatever it is. So I was thinking of it as a collective of viruses, which I don't know that there's any examples of those or virus like things, but I could see the slime mold bacteria analogy as well. Well, here, here's where I went with this. This felt, uh, the, the interesting thing to me about this, which is hard to explain, especially given what we know about biology, is how, since it didn't evolve here, how is it compatible with our biology? And is that, does that say something about the universality of bio, is that a word, universality? That's not a yeah. word coming out. Yeah, uh, no, but, that is a word, Dan. Okay, it's not weird. It's not a word coming out. But the universality of, of biology in the universe, right? Like this may be a comment of just how compatible biology really is. But this seemed more to me like the cordyceps fungus. This felt very fungus-like because it grows, it kind of takes over the mind, very similar to like what these things do to insects, ants. We've talked about them before on the programs. It's what The Last of Us video game is based on, this idea of fungus taking over your mind. But that's what it felt like because when you're looking in the room, when they have Julie Mao, and she's been taken over, there's, you know, there's crystals like coming out of her and it, she looks like she's got like a mold over her, except it's like solid and they're able to take like the liquid out. It, there's many different phases. It's not, obviously not a one-to-one ratio, but it felt very similar to that. And in some ways, fungus, it's always felt to me like a very alien, you know, it's a very <laughs> yeah. alien kind of king because it's its own kingdom. It, it's got its own rules. It doesn't use photosynthesis. I mean, it's, it's very, very different. And I felt like there's a lot of similarities there. You know, I like that, um, Dan, what I would comment on. So what I found interesting is independent of whether biology is similar throughout the universe, like life, we know the chemicals are, right? So we know sort of carbon is going to have the same chemical properties, whether it's carbon here or carbon somewhere else. And its bonding properties are what make it really special for life. And we know silicon is the other most common molecule close to carbon with the same bonding properties. So it's not surprising to me that the chemistry that this thing interacts with is fine, right? And what it really is relying on is chemistry more than biology. And I think that's a really important distinction in this. So whatever we're, we're, whether we think of it as a fungus or a slime mold, at its core, the physics and chemistry going on is molecular bonding. And the laws of molecular bonding are the same everywhere in the universe. And so that piece is what I think makes it so effective. And they can send it, whoever the precursors were, can send it everywhere knowing 
that it will find carbon and silicon to interact with. Yeah. Now, I will tell you one thing here, because this is a little foreshadowing. The laws of chemistry and laws of physics are universal. Uh, there's a universal, universal nature to it. But unless you're in the ring, which also is created by the precursors. Yeah. So the physics can change there as well. But I like what you said there. Uh, but let's talk about, so that's basically how it's first form. And then there's this experiment on an asteroid, Eros. And what's interesting about this is instead of now infecting one person, it's infected a lot of people. And we've seen it kind of take over a ship. It goes towards an, towards an energy source. And then you kind of see it develop a hive mind kind of property in a way where it then the asteroid has a mind of its own. And we later find out that it's Julie Mao who is the single mind. But I'm also, I, I'm, you know, I'm almost as if she was like the originer. Of, I don't know, that's not a, that's not a word. Uh, the origin of the in, infestation, right? I'll just make them up as, I'll just make up words as we yeah. need them. Hey, no, Dan, as an analytical mastermind, you just need to do what you need to do to <laughs> analyze the situation. Right, whether we use real <laughs> words or not. But you know what I'm saying. But, but that's what I like yeah. about this. It, it becomes this hive mind. And then the asteroid takes off on its own. What, what's cool about that is, number one, we have this kind of collective consciousness in a way, but also the, the, the asteroid itself has some very interesting properties. It appears to have like some sort of biology that's giving it an exhaust so that it's able to be propelled. It becomes radar invisible, and, and, and it seems to have this collective consciousness. I, this, I really like, I like this, and I want to hear, Ben, from, yeah. from a... From a an engineering standpoint, how would it be possible to get this to, to zoom around like that? Yeah, well, so there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think one of the, the really interesting things is we see from the scientists who worked for, uh, for Jules, Jules Pierre Mao that the reason they put it on Eros was because the, the molecule needed more biomass to evolve and to discover new things. And they saw Eros as a way to generate more tech because they were giving the molecule more things to look at than it, ha it had seen before. So I think that's a really interesting thing that this is kind of, a, I think they really did work treating it kind of like some sort of symbiotic colony. And by giving it more stuff, it was learning and discovering and mm. creating something new. So, but what's really interesting is what Eros becomes, which is, so what's really interesting about Eros is it's a big asteroid. It's in the asteroid belt. Uh, we've studied it before. We, we're sent, we've sent probes near it. Um, but it's a really big object for, and it's very, very heavy. So seeing it accelerate the way we do. So in, in, the, in the episode of season two, when it's accelerating away from the missiles and from the Rocinante, we know that the Rocinante was trying to pull 20 Gs to try to keep up with this. And even that was enough. But right. let's say 20 Gs. To accelerate Eros at 20 Gs would take 100 billion of the biggest rockets we have ever built on Earth. Wow. That's a lot. That's, that's, that's a ton. A lot. I don't even know how you would put that many rockets on something that small. Like, 100 billion is a lot. <laughs> no, it is. And, and I think it goes to the, the biggest challenge that anything always has is energy generation. Yeah. Right from a physics point of view, but I want to take a step back from that, if I may, Dan, um, to to just the evolution of it and 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 what Ben alluded to and it and its learning. I, I love that we're we're going into things that bring out some new physics we haven't been able to talk about, 
And this, to me, is a great example of how complex systems spontaneously behave, hmm. right? Okay. So you, you, you've, what you do is you think about it in stages, and the, the core underlying protomolecule doesn't necessarily have to change when you have enough of them interacting with each other. Because we know nonlinear and complex systems basically go through phase transitions very similar to something going, say, water going from water to ice or water to gas, right? You just change the temperature a little, and it looks radically different. So there's these transition points where suddenly this colony of what you think of as inert could either have a mind or could actually radically change and, and generate some new dynamics, some new physics. And so it, it, it's one way to, we often anthropomorphize and say, well, it's learning, but it may have just gotten sufficiently complex that it went into a next state with a natural transition. And so it was able to recreate a mind. It still doesn't quite explain how it generated enough energy to have, a, what was it, 100 billion rockets. Yeah, 100 billion. <laughs> but a lot of the other stuff makes sense in this context. It's a different type of physics, something we're not really used to thinking about. I love that. I also like your uh, example of nanobots because in a way, you got artificial intelligence. What better way to create a hive mind artificially if you're not going to use biology than with a bunch of nanobots that are able to learn and communicate wirelessly, which almost looks like telepathy, right? You could pull yeah. that off with nanobots and AI and, and communication like that. I, what I think is cool is these are... are great examples of what we would think of as both molecular machines, but also molecular um, information processing devices, like memory devices and, and simple processors. I mean, if you think about a computer, it's really just a bunch of transistors put together, right? If you strip a computer down to the smallest piece, it's not going to look like it can calculate anything. <laughs> right. right. I but don't look like I can little... calculate anything. Yeah, but you put those little pieces together and suddenly you have CPU and memory and, and other things. And so it, it's a really, I think, clever and cool way to s basically send the parts out into space and know that they will assemble at the right time. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's great because once, you know, that's a great segue because once Eros crashes onto Venus... It has this unique ability to basically manipulate the things around it. I'm not 100% sure where it gets enough material to develop the ring. But what I love about it is it basically creates this form. And not only is it on, on Venus creating the little jellyfish type thing that floats out to the end of the solar system, which I love. And, and I got to tell you, every time that the main characters look on their screen and watch a news report where something's happening, and I remember seeing that, and I said exactly what, I won't say it here on the show, because it's, you know, got curse words in it, but I said the exact same thing as Amos said five seconds later when I was watching <laughs> it. I was like, what the bird? And it was very funny. But, so it's on it's on Venus, and it's, it's doing all this stuff. What I also like about that is... The experiments are going on with, with children who they're infecting with the protomolecule. It's really changing them into a whole different being. But that what, that creature knows what's going on on Venus and says our work's almost done, which is that this collective hive mind. Yeah. Well, that's a – oh, sorry, Dan. No, 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 go on. Oh, you, you look done, so I wasn't sure. I'm, I'm <laughs> never done. I'm never complete. <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's the one tricky physics that you always get in things like this is is how – how do, do the pieces really talk to each other, right? What you called, what you alluded to as the telepathy 
over great distances. And I think that's where the technology starts to go kind of crazy and our unified theory is going to get harder. But as, as I'll, I'll just foreshadow, once you realize it's sort of trans-dimensional or wormhole-ish, um, clearly that's an underlying piece that must be at work in these early stages of telepathy because there's no other, there's no standard physics, no matter what you do, that would connect the, the protomolecules in the experiment to the protomolecule on Venus. That, that, you could have two very separate little things being built and, and so on, right? But I, I, I do not see a way they would be connected um, until we see some later stuff. Now, here's, now, this is, once again, I, I always do the same type of thing here, so I'm going to say something that I feel like you guys are going to say is wrong. But doesn't really quantum entanglement, doesn't that say where one electron knows one thing and it's affected by over great distances the spin of another electron? I know I use this improperly, but I feel like that works here. In, in this case, that could be how it's connected. It could be a quantum connection. Um, and that sort of quantum coherence is very hard to maintain over long distances. So, yeah, that, that's one way it could be, Dan. But just in general, that's the hardest thing to explain okay. always with yeah. physics is this long-distance communication. Yeah, unless, unless it's not that hard and they've, they're using the technology they've discovered in terms of radios and, or they're just hijacking the, the communication systems of the, of the world that they know of. No, that could work, but that still would be slow. It would still be slow, but I mean, we don't really know that the, I mean, for all we know, the, the hybrids on Mars just were hearing the news reports, you know, a few hours later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Okay. I like that, Ben. That's a, that's an example of going for the simple explanation. Yeah. <laughs> Occam's razor, baby. That's what it worked. So, so we have this, so basically we have this, this jellyfish that comes out and forms this ring. Now, the next couple things we're going to talk about, this is where things get very tricky because now once the ring is complete, it shows very different properties than the protomolecule did beforehand. There's not really any biology. It's strong physics. It essentially creates literally a ring that has to be turned on, by the way. Right, so so someone runs into it, um, and it turns on, and then provides access to essentially a pocket dimension where the rules of physics can be changed at the drop of a hat. And this was very confusing to me. I have no idea how to explain it, but that's where you guys come in. So how do we explain it? <laughs> I'm going to start with some physics so Ben can think about how to engineer it. Okay. And he may like my physics. He may not. He may engineer it differently or with mine. We'll see. If you don't like Denon's physics, Ben, feel free to quote your own. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it connects to the problem of creating all that energy earlier. And all of this seems to be related to, to sort of gravitational manipulation and space-time manipulating. And we know sort of the curvature of space-time is actually related to energy and is related to mass and it's all kind of connected. And so that's about as far as I can get. You know, the, the rest of it gets very technical, lots of equations. Um, but, but, but the simple level... <laughs> Uh, well, I'm done. Going with well done. Denon. I'm well going done. with it a manipulation of space in such a way that, you know, creates what looks like new physics, but is really new sort of space time behavior. And because a lot of it has to do with manipulating things like how fast they're going, making things stop, you know, a, a lot of strange accelerations, decelerations, interesting things about having a maximum speed limit. So I, I think at its core, this is connected to that earlier mystery 
which is how did it generate so much energy to, to accelerate so quickly? I'm putting the two together. Yeah, I mean, because there's, there's speed limits that are involved, which includes the ships moving and people, and there's a, there's a speed limit. But then that does not apply to the, um, the behemoth's radio transmitter, which is moving at the speed of light, right? So, Ben, how does, how does all that work, given what Denon said and what I'm yeah, giving you? Yeah, so I think it's a a mass speed limit. So it's only a speed limit for things with mass, true mass, because photons have mass, but not really. It's more of a momentum thing that's kind of weird and physics-y. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> like okay. photons have to have a momentum because they can interact with things, but they, they're technically massless because you can't go the speed of light if you have any mass. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I think yeah. I think with the photon thing, what's a little weird is not the speed limit, but why there was no phase shift in the frequency. Because that's mm. what would happen to photons coming out. Their energy would, in principle, change, and that change in energy would change their frequency. So that's the slightly tricky thing. But yeah. I but agree with Ben. Mass think, is what I sets the speed limit. I think light's just not affected in that, in that space. It's yeah. only mass. So, I mean, it could be as simple as there's just a lot of mass in there that, uh, or I don't know, maybe there's goo. <laughs> maybe there's like goo. There, <laughs> That's an the official answer we just waited for. I, the goo I mean, is your th- answer? Th- there could, there might be a physical material in there that like they can't a see, goo. like dark, like dark matter or something. Right. That physically ha- you, ha- you have to push out of the way. And so anything with mass is interacting with this dark matter that's in this ring space. And therefore, you can't go very quickly in there because there's all this stuff in the way, but you can't see it. Oh, I really like that. I'm taking my answer back. And if it's dark matter, if it's matter that we can't technically really see, but is still there, then it could be something that's very, very massive. And that could be what's warping the space to allow this kind of network of rings to all kind of coalesce into a single location. And, and what I like about dark matter, just real quickly, Dan, is by definition, it doesn't interact with light. So you have sort of two things. It doesn't help with the, the, the connections and the gravity thing, but you could have dark matter that changes its density and viscosity without being so massive to generate a lot of gravity at that moment. Because mm-hmm. if there's not a lot of gravity, the light will just go through but you'll be in, as Ben said, um, the technical term of goo. Right. <laughs> um, you will be in dark goo and and not moving anymore. And does dark matter? It comes in both goo. What about paste? Does it come in a paste? Does it come in a well? See, I think oil? I, I'm going. I'm going to go really off the the farm here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of a viscoelastic dark matter. Mm-hmm. Um, a foam, a we, foam. It's a, it's a fuzzy foam. It, it is a foam. Yeah. Well, because we've, we've talked about this before. We've talked about like the cornstarch and water. Yeah. That if you hit it real fast, it's solid-like. You can run on it. Right. But if you go slowly, it's liquid-like. Yeah. Does that remind you of something? It certainly if does. If you hit it real fast, you, you get stuck. But if you go slowly, huh. you're okay. So it's the cornstarch and water equivalent of this inexplicable dark thing, matter, dark corn matter. cornstarch and water. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's a yeah. Nailed it. The non-Newtonian space. <laughs> right. I I I am liking this very yeah. much. That's great. Uh, so and it so it's able to do that. There's a centerpiece to it. So you're saying that's the control hub. That's what's basically adjusting the. Yeah, and I yeah. think I think that's there. There's there's some sort of control hub that is also detecting that people are you know roughhousing in in the in the in the in the uh, in the airport or whatever. 
And it's uh, it's you know it's it's the parents saying you know quit it. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's changing the amount of cornstarch, yeah. making it more or less you know viscoelastic, and changing the speed limit at which you can move. Yeah. So we we see the speed limit change, and that's just changing the material properties. And if you do it all with dark matter, none of this will impact light or radio signals. And what's great about that is you have um, basically it's a defense system, and it's an incredible defense system. You know, I, yeah. I, I love that. I think it's great. Now, one of the things, so so in the ring, you have another aspect here, which is to the proto molecule, which is this appearance of you know the investigator who takes the form of Joe Miller. And what I like about this is it's basically the way they describe it, which I think is great, is basically playing like the piano in your brain and just pushing the right buttons to make this person appear for you. What's interesting about that is not only we've talked about how the brain is, a, is an electrochemical organ, right? There was this great, uh, great experiment that was done with monkeys where essentially you could use an electric trigger inside the, uh, the specific part of the brain, which is the central lateral thalamus. And if they were knocked out, just a small little electrical stimulus would wake them back up and, you know, basically ready to go from a deep sleep within seconds. And then if you stop the electrical impulse, they would be knocked out. What that says is that really mild electrical impulses can trigger incredible feats within your brain. But this is speaking to a whole different property of the protomolecule. It's not so much how could it do that, because I think how this could work is very similar. But the fact that it does work and it does interact with your brain and the electrochemical processes, would this, do you think we could tie this somehow into the hive mind aspect that I've been kind of pushing here? It definitely is going to have to be related. And it gets a little bit interesting Um you know, kind of to Ben's idea of are these all really connected or is it just connecting to the already existing, you know, sort of communication network? And I think once again, it's really an energy level situation here. I think the hardest thing from a what I would call traditional physics point of view is the energy output capable of this system. Right, like okay. when when it did its hundred billion rockets, I love that number. I got to keep coming back to it, but but it's a similar thing because the 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 proto molecule, the ring, wherever the signal's coming from, is not right next to the person receiving it. Right. So as you said, Dan, it's it's not so much, you know, we've talked a lot about manipulating memories on the show, manipulating the brain. Um, we we can't ask Ben about it. We know that. Right. Right. There's a lot going on here that we think that part's you know, going to be explainable. Here, it's really the distance over which it happens and, and the precision and finesse that is used, right? So that that's the challenge, but it, it's, it's the basic challenge, I think, of the energy source for this thing that it faces at every turn that we run into. Well, and I also love that you've mentioned uh, Ben's inability to talk about things because we, you know, you're wearing the Westwood brain scanning hat that... Uh, exactly. And I'm surprised Ben hasn't mentioned any patents pending or file a trademark lawsuit against you or anything like that. Let's hope that we stay out of legal trouble while we're doing that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a great way to do it. And I, I it's just, again, it, it fits into this whole, you know, the unified theory of protomolecule. Where does all this fit into the world? Because, you know, the ring then is capable of creating these other rings. So there's a network of rings that now lead out into other solar systems. Does this, 
Does this connect to the dark matter as well? Is this a wormhole thing? How can we, how does this, are we in a pocket dimension? That's where I go. I don't know if that is so, even a so thing. So I, I have a quick clarification question for you guys because you've paid more attention at the later parts of the season. So I'm a little bit of a disadvantage because I'm, I'm in the Dan. I've missed most, you know, whatever, 40% of what's happened. <laughs> right. D- does it actually create the other rings or is it connecting to them? I felt like it's connecting to them. I think they were already them. there. I think the idea yeah. is this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. precursor sent out these pro- the asteroids, right? Because they talk about how Eros is a captured extrasolar object. Right. And Or not Eros, uh, Phoebe. Yeah. Because it all started on Phoebe. And so Phoebe, I think, I think the idea is that whoever made the protomolecule in the first place threw a bunch of asteroids with it on all over the place and whenever something finally activated it it ev- would eventually build the ring and then connect back into the network it's like a hub and i think yeah and i think soul soul as in the sun our our solar system uh we got there too late and the precursors seem to be gone and we we seem to have missed the party and we're connecting into a dead network. I, I do wonder, just real briefly, you know, you mentioned it, and, and I don't know why this triggered network. So something we haven't talked about much in the show is cosmic strings, which are these remnants from the early universe, the Big Bang, that are potentially really cool gravitational effects. And it just occurred to me, this might be the final piece of making the network. Hmm. Um, okay. So the ring is a little farther out. It's past Uranus. You know, it's not quite outside the solar system. But I think it moves away perhaps to draw in, connect to uh, a cosmic string as a core energy source. Now, in reality, I have a feeling if there were actual cosmic strings going through the solar system right now, we would have known about it, detected them. But you can imagine it bringing one, I don't know, and that maybe messes things up and we haven't seen those effects yet in the show. But the, 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 you know, the people who made this may know where that basic network is and is tying into that for making its structure here. So you mean like literally taking cosmic strings and knitting like a like a scarf of systems. The scarf of solar systems. Yeah. I mean using using it as the core gravitational anomaly that it builds off of. Okay. Ben, does that hold up? Is this a scarf of of cosmic strings? Yeah, I think also there's probably all sorts of effects from like being too close to a star as well. So you probably have to get far enough away that you're not going to you know have your your transit into the ring space be destabilized by the gravity fields. Although what what really got just got me interested is like what if you're coming from the side from like Neptune? Like can you go in can you go through the ring both ways? Like I'm wondering. Oh like on the other side? Like does it <laughs> Yeah. Like what if you come from I would imagine I so. It works both ways. I think it's just a plane that you I, I don't know. That's the way I, I got a magical yeah, mind. Yeah, but though. if if you come through the plane the wrong way, do you like I, I don't know. That's I don't know. That's a really yeah. good question. I, d- I don't know. It's unclear. I don't know. We might find out. We might. Yeah. So once we have these things, so once we have this network, which seems like that's a pretty good explanation for the network, right? What's interesting about the show is through each of these ring gates, when you land on a place, and we've only landed on one, New Terra, where, and, and Ben, you're there right now, so you can verify everything uh, yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, it's great here. You can verify. Love this lithium. <laughs> you can verify everything we're talking about. But there are these ancient structures that are on the planet. And I want to close with this stuff because, A, I think it's really interesting. But B, what I love to do, wait, I said, did I say A and then B or did I say 1 and B? I don't want to be the guy who says A1 you said and a, then B. You said B. Okay, good. Keep it letters. I believe you did. Let's keep it letters. Okay, I don't want to be that guy like Buzz in Home Alone. Go watch it if you don't know the reference. It's a funny line. <laughs> but but you, So you have these, these existing structures on New Terra. 
And I like this because we're now going to bring in another one of Den. Den, you're like a multi-tool of incredible expertise. You're you're on Ancient Aliens. What exactly. better wheelhouse for you than to talk about Ancient Aliens? What I like about this really quickly, because there's a couple of really cool things on our planet, and it's this idea of different technology, advanced technology coming in contact with a different species. So in the show, we're looking at advanced technologies. We're the primitive ones. But it's interesting to look on Earth, the only real examples we have unless you can give me some extra ancient aliens ones. But the ones I could find that made sense were some advanced technologies from a civilization before us that was advanced for them, but not as advanced for us, but still extremely impressive, which includes two things, the pyramids. I mean, the pyramids are great because they're extremely extensive. They took forever to build. They're... If those things turned on, like the structures on Nutera, like how cool would that be, right? Like they're aligned with the stars. Yeah, you'd have you'd have the movie and TV show Stargate. Right. But anyway, <laughs> right? We'll get that on the show too. But I love that idea. But also, and I'm going to get this name wrong, but the anti-Kytheria mechanism. This is my favorite. I love this thing, and it's basically this ancient Greek analog computer that was found only bits and pieces. But this is like the epitome of gear technology. I mean, that is one third of our title. Gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. I mean, this device should be part of our logo as far as I'm concerned. It accurately would tell eclipses, the movements of the planets and the sun. It was this incredibly amazing analog computer. I mean, and it was all gear-based. I love seeing things like that because when we're looking at New Terra, we're looking at an advanced civilization that is taking all that to the next level, especially in the expanse, which is essentially, when you're looking at it, it's all these gears and buttons because in one of the episodes, you know, we have to, uh, the investigator comes in and um, uh, Jim has to pull a root out, which starts these things up again. And they're back in action, which is very similar. So let's talk about this. Denon, I want to get your expertise on this. Uh, how possible is it for an alien structure to have been built that has an energy source, have been built a billion years ago, and still be functional when people arrive that much later? You know, it's interesting, Dan. I think there's, there's really two pieces that come into this. The biggest is how much weather and, well, and climate does the planet have? I see. Right? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's been fascinating, there, you know, you, you mentioned me being on Ancient Aliens, and, and, you know, a lot of the things that, that happen are we talk about cool things that, in my mind, humans clearly built, built and did because I actually think we're rather clever and intelligent, and it's fun to think about what we've done. But I did learn recently about um, scientists asking the question how much time would have to exist to completely wipe out, say, the evidence that we were here. Like, how long would our buildings and the wires and the computers survive, you know, the geological processes that go well, on? Well, I would argue the plastic is the problem. All the other stuff you mentioned will deteriorate over a period of time. Plastic lasts for a long time. It does last for a long time, but if you have major geological forces going on and it's getting shifted through the Earth, um, we forget that on the geological timescales, like go back way before sort of the dinosaurs, Right. That time scale is long enough to like cycle plastic through lava and, and, and get it to go away. So it, it's the, the question we'd have to ask for Ben is how geologically active is this planet? Because that's really, I think, going to determine whether this stuff survives. Because if, if there's enough mountain formation, or, well, and also the time scale, right? Right. If, if this is only, say, the civilization died 100,000 years ago, then we're good, right? This stuff is going to be there. 
right? But if it's millions to tens of millions of years, you know, the time scale at which mountains can form, um, oceans and lakes can totally change, then this stuff is in trouble. That's kind of my basic view of this. Yeah, and, and there is a problem because the, the planet does look fairly geologically active. I think it was filmed, well, it was filmed on Nutera here where I am right, right. now. <laughs> but it, it looks right. suspiciously like Iceland. Right. <laughs> Very odd how that works. Um, it's yeah. universal. So, yeah, so there's there's clear like glacial stuff going on, and we know that glaciers are really great at uh, at on relatively short timescales totally destroying evidence of things. Like if if we had another ice age, I don't think there'd be anything left of New York. Like the the if the glaciers came in and back down to you know where mid you know midway through North America, like they were at the end of the last ice age where there was a mile of ice on top of New York, if that happened again, there would be nothing left. Like, it would scour the ground. It would all be gone. Um, and we see a lot of mountains and dunes and things on this planet that would make me think it's relatively geologically active. But at the same time, the technology seems to be underground everywhere. So it's possible that the core is not liquid anymore. Because you have these giant drilling machines and other stuff that seem to have kind of consumed the interior of the planet. I think, I think it would actually be interesting to kind of see what happened to Venus, to kind of take what happened to Venus in the show and apply that to Nutera, where it clearly dug in and built a lot of stuff. And I, I suspect that Nutera maybe was the launching point for the ring, much like Venus was the launching point for the ring in our system. Oh, you know, I really like that idea, Ben, because it does raise the question. Maybe there were never, whatever, quote, life form sent out the protomolecules to yeah. places, maybe was never there, right? Yeah. Maybe what you're seeing is not an absence where people left. Maybe you're just seeing what the protomolecule did to create the ring. And once its job was done, the technology temporarily shut down. Yeah. And and the presence of, 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 you know, the investigator is what's restarted it. Yeah. For all we know, there was some other civilization there that, that you know, did some similar experiment on, the, on their protomolecule sample that they got. And it, they built, you know, built whatever. And yeah, and then they all died out and that was it. Well, also, we also have to remember that much like the world of She-Ra, this planet has essentially been turned into a technology. We see multiple yeah. structures across the face of the Earth. They're at very specific intervals. There's an electric bolt, the lightning bolt that happens across the entire circumference of, of the planet. One of the, There's a fusion reactor that explodes. It sends a, a shockwave throughout the whole world. We know there's an extensive underground structure. So could it be that the precursor, that these, these people who built the protomolecule, who built this technology, could it be that they basically hijacked the planet and could turn it off, for lack of a better term? The lack of a better term? Because maybe it's not as geologically active now that they've turned it into what they want it to be. Does that make sense? No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, Dan. And I think... It could be, for instance, I, I like Ben's idea. You know, Venus is covered in clouds, so we don't really know mm. what the protomolecule did to Venus, right? I, I, I'd be, you know, curious to send a, a, you know, a probe down in there and see what has radically changed. This could be where the precursors, like you said, were never there. The protomolecule is designed to 
build the ring and shut down because it does. Again, you guys are the experts at this point. I feel like once the ring was built, we're, we're ignoring Venus. It's like nothing's happening there. Well, I think everything got sucked out of Venus protomolecule related and built the ring. Is my guess. Well, we don't know that. Like no, the machines, the machines on New Terra, there might be remnants on Venus waiting to be turned on again if necessary. Mm, I see what you mean. Right. Oh, it sure, might I'm not sure take, there are. Yeah, and so. So th this could just be where the ring in that system was launched from. And like you said, Dan, it makes perfect sense to me. Once the ring was launched, the planet can shut down until it's needed again. Right. I mean, that makes perfect sense, mostly because, you know, I said it, and I think that that says quite a bit. Right. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think we have all the pieces for a unified theory of protomolecule. It seems to be, well, I'll let you guys, I'll let you hit it. Uh, ben, what do you think you're, what, do you have a, a unified theory here? I, I think what we see of the protomolecule is that it is some sort of it, it's some sort of group colony organism that's definitely a little bit beyond our our understanding, but it clearly is able to fuse technology and biology together and is able to spread itself through the use of both the ring network but also through extrasolar objects like Eros. I think it's just this colony that can kind of spread itself and go dormant for a very long time until something kind of touches it and kicks it off again. Something touches it. <laughs> well said, Ben. Uh, Denon, any adjustments? Uh, how accurate do you think that is? You know, I, I think that's very close. I, I would make two refinements. Um, one, one I wasn't thinking of until Ben brought it up in the show Um I, I think it misleads us into thinking of it as biology. I mean, it has analogs to things we see in biology, colonies and fungus and um, other things and, and, and slime molds. I think it's our first example of just a, a purely interesting chemistry, right? It, it, it's a chemistry that mimics what we think of as life. Um, it's able to do machinery. It's able to act like a nanobot. It's able to do all these things we would like, quote, inanimate objects to do. It goes through phase transitions when it gets sufficiently complex. And so it's kind of an interesting non-carbon-based hive mind. But I think the really fascinating thing is it clearly has an element of dark matter as part of its structure. And it leverages dark matter in interesting ways. Um, and that's kind of the part of it that makes it hard to understand since we don't know what dark matter is yet, but we know it exists. Yeah, I think, you know, I have to say, I think that this is probably, I, I don't love this dichotomy idea that it's either a technology or a biology. I think this must be some, some completely new form that is able to both adhere and, and connect with bio, because this thing's going out across multiple solar systems. And if we, we can make the assumption that if there's one civilization, one extra, you know, it's kind of like what we talk about now. If there's If we find one alien, there's a million out there, right? Like if there's one extraterrestrial, they're, they're out there. So I think that this particular protomolecule has the ability to both adapt. It is a biology, but I think it's also a technology. I think it, it, it can do both things and manipulate either one when it needs to, which is why it's called the proto molecule and not the proto bacteria or the proto nanobot right like it's essentially a <laughs> multi-purpose molecule right i mean that that would be my explanation um but i think but one of us is right but <laughs> it's kind of two against well, one well you know i i think we're saying the same things highlighting different aspects of it dan which is what i and like we're all right i think we nailed it and we're all right i mean i think i 
I think we nailed it. It's something that can interact with carbon and silicon. Let's just keep it at that. Sure. Yeah. Th- that's the bio and the techno. I think so. And I, I think with everything that we've given you, once we capture the ability to mess with cosmic strings and dark matter, I think you can make this at home. And if you want to know the recipe, you can get in touch with us. Easy ways to do that. We're on the website's F Triple G B T, and you can find us on Twitter at, at F Triple G B T Pod, Facebook at F Triple G B T. And you can talk to us. You want to get the brain trust involved in something? Very easy. Ben, where can people get in touch with you on Nutera? Yeah, you can we still have all the social networks out here because you know you gotta you gotta tweet. Right. You have to. <laughs> so uh, you can get me on all those at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. Denon, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter and Instagram is at Denon Michael, just reverse my name. And then Facebook, it's at Prof Denon Michael. And for the future, for future listeners, TikTok, is that going to be Denon Michael as well? I, I, I hope it, unless it's taken, that would be very disappointing. And then it would be Prof Denon Michael. And then it would be Prof Denon Michael. Right. <laughs> uh, I am easy to find at on Twitter. I am at Daniel J. Glenn, Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. There's a lot going on here. The protomolecule is a very dangerous substance. We watched it be manipulated into a bioweapon. Don't do that with this information. Be responsible. You want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. Until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. If you like the show, you got to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. We're easy to find on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you want to learn more about the stuff we talked about in this episode, the news articles and the videos, you can find all of that on the website, fgbt.com. Not only do we have the new stuff, we've got our social media, we got previous episodes, and even links to the YouTube version of this show, fgbt.com. That's where you find it. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.